This episode may contain themes that are unsettling for some listeners and includes dialogue that is inappropriate for children under 14. Listener discretion is strongly advised. I'm Brooke. And I'm Melissa. And this is... For God's sake. Don't drink the Jones juice. Welcome to episode 47. Hello. Welcome, welcome. Hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) So guys, this is going to be a long one. It's going to be... It's definitely going to make up for last week's 43 minute episode. Faux show. More than make up for it. Yeah, uh, we've both got very long cases today. I don't know how that happened, cause, because typically, for whatever reason, when I do a long one, you do a short one and vice versa. Um, I do have a lot to talk about this week as far as just chitter-chatter, um, but I'm going to try to keep it short because we'll be talking a lot. For <laughs> hours just about that. <laughs> So, um, would you like to talk about anything first? Sure. Mine will be a lot shorter than yours. Okay. Um, so me and Scotty took Titus to the beach for the very first time. Mm-hmm. Well, not for the very first time because he saw a beach in Mississippi one time, but we didn't mm-hmm. really get like in the water. Mm-hmm. And if you know Titus, you know he's basically a mermaid. Um, but he really did not care too much about the ocean. Like, he always wanted to be at the beach, and he wanted to play in the water, you know, where it crashes into the shore. But he didn't really want to get out there into the water, which I thought was so odd because... He's a little fish. Yes. He is a merman. He is, and, and really just... Maybe it freaked him out because he couldn't, like, see the bottom like he had in a swimming pool or something. No, because he, he likes lakes. I think oh. it's just, you know, it, the water's not still. Mm-hmm. I think that's kind of what got him because he can't really, you know. It's a lot more rough. Exactly. And, mm-hmm. I mean, at one point, honestly, we I probably should not have even taken him out there because, like, I was having a hard time maneuvering through the water because the waves were just so rough. Yeah. Uh, but we were only out there for, you know, a few minutes before he was, like, ready to go. <laughs> um, and at one point, this dude, oh, my God, okay. So, we're trying to, like, get him to go to the pools because mm-hmm. we and Scotty are, you know, we can't really get in the water if he's not in the water. So, we're just kind of standing there burning. Mm-hmm. And... um so we're trying to get him to go to the pool. And so he finally is like, okay, sure, we'll go to the pool. We start walking. And this kid literally bends down and picks something up and shows it to me and goes, what's this? You can guess what it was? Poop. It was a jellyfish. No. <laughs> it was a jellyfish. No. And we were like, put that down. Oh, my God. It was like part of a jellyfish. And the other part of it was like on the ground. But <gasps> he like threw it really fast. And we we're like, dude, that could sting you. Holy shit. I'm surprised it didn't. I know. Yeah. It was it was crazy. But yeah, he just saw this weird <laughs> jelly thing on the ground and just thought, What's you know, this? I'm going to pick it up. I'm like, poop. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know which would have been worse. Oh, God. But um, then we went to um, the Ripley's Believe It or Not Museum there. Mm -hmm. And so Titus 
is okay peel this is such a controversial like thing but we used to always use a leash with titus because he's a runner and he will get away from you and he has no sense of danger or just awareness of, you know, like the world. Really quick, I, I don't think it should be controversial. Like, that's stupid. I agree. Like, if your kid is one to run away from you, what is the problem? They're you like know? comparing it to an like animal. Having a dog tied to a tree. Like, or just having a dog on a leash in general, they're like, my child is not an animal. And it's like, well, no shit. But if your kid's going to run out in front of a car, you I mean, might as well put something on them that's going to prevent them from yeah, doing it. Safety. Yeah, it's safety. Like, you're like, a bad parent if you know that your kid is capable of doing that and you decide not to take precautions. Right. Like, that's so dumb. Yeah. But anyways, we would always put him... And it's not like it goes around their throat, like around his <laughs> neck. It literally is a backpack with a harness. Right. Like, come on. But, now you tug on it, you know, on his neck. And he's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> like, that is the over there. Oh, God. People are ridiculous. I know. It's so stupid. But we always put him <laughs> on a leash. And, and we never, like, really used the leash. We just had it there in case yeah. he were to, like, so I'd have it on my wrist, and, but I'd hold his hand. Mm -hmm. And so if he were to jerk away from my hand, I would have that extra net there to keep him from, you know, going off. I wasn't leading him with it. And, you know, I mean, sometimes he would get down on the ground and, like, crawl like a dog. But, yeah, and it would embarrass me. And I'd be like, <laughs> please get up. Please. Like, this already looks bad. That's Can we please? So hilarious but anyways we did not have to use the leash inside of ripley's at all we didn't even bring it inside because that's great he has just he was probably so mesmerized by things in there yes he was so good he stood by our side the whole time that's excellent and we paid for all of the exhibits there were like four and um the first one we did was like a mirror maze mm -hmm. and um they gave you like those you know 3d glasses this is Myrtle Beach, Panama City. Panama Beach. City. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know. I thought so, and then somebody said you went to Myrtle, and I was like, no, no, no. We went to Panama. Okay, City. I thought so. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so like everything in the mirror room, you know, kind of jumped out at you. It was three yeah. D, and like Titus just thought it was so cool. And I had never done a mirror maze before, so that was a new experience for me too. Yeah. And there's this one room you walk into where um, I don't know what it looked like without the glasses on because I never took them off. But um, so the ground literally looked like if you were to step onto it, mm -hmm. it would, like you would just fall into outer space. Wow. That's literally what it looked like. Like I had to put my foot on it and like make sure that it was an illusion <laughs> because it, it really looked like you would fall into outer space. Yeah. And so me and Scotty walked onto it and Scott, not Scotty, he did not test it. He just walked. And I was like, dude, you could have died, but you know, whatever. <laughs> but, um, Titus would not do it. Yeah. And he saw us standing on it, but he would not do it. I had to jerk him like oh my gosh. onto it so that he, he would know that it's okay. Yeah. And he thought it was so cool. And he's just looking down and I can just see like the amazement and just wonder in his eyes. And it was just, so awesome. it was so cool. And I thought that going through 
the part of the museum where it's like the actual museum part and you see like all the creepy mm-hmm. crazy stuff i thought he would be very uninterested yeah. but no he thought it was all so cool that's great he thought all the figures like mm-hmm. um you know they make like the wax figures or whatever yeah. they are um the you know they're plastic or whatever out of you know people through history yeah weird conditions or whatever yeah and he thought they were all real and he would just like be staring at them like you know like what kids look like when they're like side-eyeing something kind of like and so um i went up to there's this one lady and i can't remember what they call her but her lips were like as big as her face pretty much and they like stuck out really far and um, he was just, like, looking at her, like, oh, my God, <laughs> what the heck? <laughs> and so I, like, touched her, and I was like, she's fake, Titus. She's not real. She's fake. Yeah. And so after that, um, he would touch all of them and go, it's fake. Yeah. It's fake. It was so funny. That's so cute. But we had we had a blast there, honestly. And um, if you know Titus in this sense, he is such a homebody. He's such a homebody. He never mm-hmm. wants to go anywhere. And anytime we leave the house, he's always like, I want to go to the yellow house because mm-hmm. we live in a yellow house. <clears throat> and um, with the beach house, we stayed right on the beach in a condo. He said it was better than the yellow house and he did oh. not want to leave the beach house. And me and Scotty were like blown away because yeah. Titus loves being at our house more than any like Brooke has a nice house with a pool and all that stuff and he still would rather be at our yeah. little tiny house than yeah. anywhere and it's it was just really cool to see you know Titus in that kind of environment where mm-hmm. you know he really just enjoyed himself and like thoroughly enjoyed himself with everything that's so awesome I'm so glad you guys had a great time <laughs> Me too. I'm sure you were a bit stressed just by the thought of it and... oh I was so stressed out but um it was m- a much better vacation than I had you know originally assumed so that's fantastic yeah so tell us about your two back-to-back <laughs> trips what the heck yeah I know it's uh <laughs> So we, our last recording, we ended up having to record 45 and 46 the same day uh, because Alyssa and I were both going to be out of town. Well, my first trip was to Seattle. Um, So my boyfriend has been several times. It was my first trip out there. But uh, so we stayed in Seattle um, for six nights. We took a trip one day to the Oregon coast, which was just like, there are no words for it. It was just so beautiful. Just, just something that you'll never see in Georgia. You know what I mean? I mean, just phenomenal. The beach there is just beautiful. We went to Haystack Rock. Is that correct? I don't remember. But anyway, it's where they uh, filmed the Goonies. Um, oh, yeah. Did you see my pictures from there? I, I love The Goonies as one of my most favorite movies. Yes. So, yeah, that was just beautiful. Um, we watched the sunset there. Seattle, um, we were, of course, in the middle of the city. Um, that was a culture shock for me. Mm-hmm. It was very different from anywhere I've even ever been. Really? Even much different than, like, San Diego, even though, you know, they're both both on the West Coast. Um it was culture shock. That's all I can say. I mean, there were parts of it that were absolutely gorgeous, mm-hmm. you know, and once we got out of, out of Seattle, you know, we went to Aberdeen. Um, 
we did spend a few days. A, a big part of this trip was because I have an obsession with Kurt Cobain, you guys. And of course, you know, he, he died in his Seattle home. Um, but we went to Aberdeen, which is where he grew up, um, which is a couple hours away from Seattle. And it's mm-hmm. a lot more, uh, rural, 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 <laughs> you know, that word I hate so much. Same. But yeah, it's just, it, it's interesting out there. It's almost like Aberdeen would be like a Monticello, you know, yeah. like just small town, mm-hmm. like, but not as pretty as Monticello. Monticello's really? got a lot of like the historic homes. Aberdeen is just kind of run down. So anyway, um, did all of the Kurt Cobain stuff, of course, which was just a dream come true for me. I mean, I just... It's like what my dreams have been made of since I was a kid. So that was an amazing experience. Um, We ended up going to the Gorge for a Dave Matthews concert. Uh, My boyfriend's a huge Dave Matthews fan. That was incredible. Um, Basically, the Gorge, it's a concert venue. Um, I don't don't remember. It was a couple hours away from Seattle as well. But Mm -hmm. basically in the middle of nowhere. And you've got like these like mountains surrounding it and it's just it's just stunning the gorge sounds pretty hardcore (laughs) yeah i mean it's just it's one of those venues that like anybody who's a music lover just has to experience right you know it it was gorgeous gorgeous at the gorge gorgeous so um yeah i won't talk too 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 much about that trip but it was just amazing you guys i will say like i said we were in downtown seattle where we stayed um it broke my heart in Seattle. The homeless is just something I have never seen before. And just the drug use mm-hmm. there. Um, I mean, we at some points were walking through like crowds of people like overdosing on the sidewalk. Like this is what happens in these big cities. And it's like I told Jared, like, sure, in Atlanta, we have homeless but it's nothing like Seattle, like yeah. nothing. I would say it's a very small fraction of what's in Seattle. And I mean, they're just everywhere and it's heartbreaking. And it's like I said, the drug use is just out of control. I mean, there are people dealing, you know, selling, um, doing drugs. I mean, we saw people smoking crack, mm-hmm. you know, um, police are basically non-existent. For six days we were in Seattle. You know how many police officers I saw? One. 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 Wow. One. In Atlanta, you can't go a block without seeing one. God, no. There's always police in Atlanta. So it's just, it's very different from being here. And uh, I don't know. It's just, it's a different world. You know, it was really cool to experience, but it was also very sad. And it was just a lot of emotions there. Right. So is Seattle the place that like a lot of people will photograph the drug use that goes on there? Is that what? I'm not sure. I know what you're talking about, but I don't know that that was Seattle. I Uh, can't remember where that is, but that 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 stuff always breaks my heart. I'll tell you, I have never smelled so much weed in my life. Whatever, (laughs) dude, go anywhere in Covington or Conyers and you're going to smell it. No, like people. I mean, it's, it's legal there. So they're just smoking everywhere. You know what I mean? I don't smell it like that here. Dude, dude I smell it everywhere I go. What? Literally everywhere I go, no I way. smell it. I swear to God. And um, anywhere you go, um, like, more towards Atlanta, yeah. it gets worse and worse and worse. And, like, I'm not opposed to people smoking. Like, don't get the wrong idea. I just personally just 
it's just a lot to smell. Yeah. You know, I just don't want to always smell it. It was constant there. But, uh, yeah, it's just, it's a very different. And like I said, there's parts that are just, you know, absolutely beautifully just amazing. And then there's other parts that it's just like, wow, like this is just devastating, you know. So very cool place, though. A lot, a lot, a lot to see. We spent Every single day from the time we woke up, we did not go back to the hotel room until it was time to go to bed. Dang. There was something to do like every hour of the Mm -hmm. day. So it was really neat. We pretty much experienced everything Seattle has to offer, you know, Space Needle, you know, all the food and drinks in the city market and just all the good stuff. So um, the uh, Ferris wheel, you know, just everything. But anyway, um, I'll go on to my next trip. So we uh, got home from Seattle. I think we were home like three or four days. And then we headed directly out again just to the other side of the country. And we went to uh, Tybee Island and Savannah. Which is why <clears throat> you're getting this episode yeah, late. Now, because we forgot. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because we suck. But uh, sorry about that. We're a little late here. Um, so we just took a little three nighter, um, to Savannah and Tybee. Um, anybody that's, you know, a a local knows Savannah and Tybee, but basically, Mm -hmm. uh, Savannah is a city about 30 minutes from Tybee. Tybee is an island here in Georgia. It's about our only beach access we have here in Georgia. Um, right well no. no there's other beach access there's yeah more. but it's pretty much like the main it's one the like where everybody goes go, yeah so um anyway stayed in tybee for two nights um just at a hotel and just kind of had some chill days you know and then the last night we drove back to savannah which is the city before you get to tybee and um we stayed in a haunted inn and the inn we stayed in is not only the most haunted inn in Savannah, which also I must add, Savannah is the most haunted city in the United States, but we stayed in the room in the inn that a woman uh, uh, jumped out of a window and killed herself in. So um, I was back, I was in Savannah a couple months ago doing a ghost tour and they told the story about this room and I was like, oh shit, like I need to go there. So I pretty much booked immediately to stay as soon as I could. Yeah. We stayed in the room. Um, we did a hearse tour that night. We did experience a little bit of paranormal activity. Um, I'm not going to get into all of that right now because I we will be here all night long. But if you're my friend on Facebook, you can read a little bit about all of that pretty cool stuff have you posted um, it in like the group i did p- i shared it to the group just mm-hmm. about the light flash yeah um, but that's all and i haven't even posted all of our pictures or anything yet so i'll probably do like another write-up in the group so okay you guys be on the lookout for that but uh yeah i did experience some things um so yeah that uh we've been on the go 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 like crazy lately so um, I guess that's all I'll say about that because, like I said, we will be here all day long. So, uh, with that being said, um, also, oh yeah, um, let's uh, congratulate Brandon McCullough once again for winning the T-shirt. I saw that he got it. Yes, he did. So that's awesome. I love the choice. Me too. <laughs> Me so too. Congrats again. Congratulations. Yeah, and uh, I guess that's all I've got. Dang. Well, that's spooky yeah um they were her and jared were kind of telling me more about it earlier and i'm just like can it be me (laughs) just kidding it could be i actually would love to do that honestly we're actually um 
I'm about to invest in some um, paranormal gear. Are you? Yeah, totally. Because, you know, me and you have some places we want to visit that it would be cool to use that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, you know, Jared and I, I'm sure, will go to all kinds of other creepy places. So why not have it? We still need to go to Corpsewood Manor. Yes. That's a big reason I want to get it. When are so. we doing that? I don't know. Let's plan it right now. Let's do When it. are we doing it? I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to write it down, though, so that when we get done with this podcast, we can plan it. Okay. But let's get to fucking work. <laughs> okay, guys. So... I do have a very long story today, and um, like always, I mean, you can see what I'm covering in the title, but um, so this story is one of the only true crime stories that I've ever, you know, read or heard about that genuinely just like makes me want to cry or does make me cry. The first time I ever heard it, I literally was just like just continuous tears down my face see i know the story just like the gist of it i don't know a lot of background i don't really know the details so i'm interested to hear it i know it's very heartbreaking it is extremely sad um i'm covering matthew shepherd what Oops, was that that was my email oh my god that scared the <laughs> hell out of me sorry <laughs> probably scared everybody else too sorry Ding! so Anyways, um, so my sources were actually, um, I took some stuff from Wikipedia, but mostly I read um, the book that Matthew's mom wrote called The Meaning of Matthew, My Son's Murder in Laramie in a World Transformed. And let me tell you what, I bought the book um like on my kindle app Mm -hmm. but there was an audible um option so i could listen to it and i'm like really not one that likes to listen to stories but his mom judy she narrates it oh wow and so i literally spent (laughs) 15.99 just to hear her tell her story yeah and let me tell you what like i was crying how because, did she make it through that? Or did she? I mean. Dude, I mean, she just, I just, like, my heart obviously breaks for Matthew because what he went through was just and just terrible. I mean, he died. Mm-hmm. But as a mother, just everything that Judy went through, I just could never put myself in those shoes and fully understand exactly the amount of just heartache and just pain that she went through and so I decided that instead of reading articles and getting all my stuff or all my uh, information from there I was just mostly strictly going to use her book and get it firsthand yes and I left out a lot of stuff because I mean I would basically just be rewriting her book if I didn't but also I just you know I want you guys to read it mm-hmm. because it's like 167 pages and I think it's like 6.99 on Kindle mm-hmm. but it just you know this story is just I don't even I don't even know it's just one of those that just really gets you and you know hearing it specifically from Judy Shepard's you know words of her own it's just it just hits different it's Mm -hmm. especially listening to her like that was really sad gosh yeah (laughs) so 
I'm going to start this off with part of the, um, like, um, what is it called? Like the, when you read a book and it's like the four or the, yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah, words yeah. from the author, whatever the yeah. beginning. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so it said, you knew him as Matthew to us. He was Matt. I have tried to reconcile the two within these pages. It would be unfair to Matt if only Matthew's story was told. Matt was so much more than Matthew Shepard, the gay 21-year-old University of Wyoming college student. He had a family and countless friends. He had a life before the night he was tied to that fence. Ouch. Like, instantly, your heart just breaks. Yeah. Just instantly. Yeah. So, Judy and Dennis Shepard were fast asleep when the phone ringing sprang Judy awake. She figured it was her 21-year-old son, Matt. Judy and Dennis were in Saudi Arabia due to Dennis's work as a construction safety manager. So the time difference was nine hours. Matt didn't typically take that into account whenever he called his mom, but Judy said he seemed to be living in the moment and always wanted to share things with people in that exact moment rather than to wait Mm -hmm. when it would be like a more convenient time. How cute. Yeah. She said either that or he didn't want to calculate the time difference. It was just too much math. So. so Matt would always call Judy to tell her about a new friend that he had made at a coffee shop or to call her about some breaking news to get her opinion on it. Mm-hmm. And considering how close Judy and Matt were, it didn't bother her to hear from him whenever she got the chance. A telephone call from Matt to Judy cost five dollars a minute wow yeah so their conversations always had to be short and they were more spread apart than either would have liked judy described her relationship with matt as feeding off of each other's energy she felt that the bond she had with matt was stronger than a normal bond that a mother has with her children she felt this especially because matt was a very colicky baby and the excuse me They spent most of their time alone together because Dennis was hardly ever home because of work. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, though, it was not Matt calling. The man calling was an emergency room doctor from um, Ivinson Memorial Hospital in Laramie. There's a lot of words in this that I don't know how to pronounce, but I'm going to do my best. Dennis woke up to the gasp that escaped Judy, and he took the phone from her, and after a while of him listening to the doctor, Judy said that a sort of helpless and mournful groan came from Dennis that she had never heard come from him before, and she has never heard again. The doctor told them that Matt had been attacked, and the injuries that he suffered on his head were so severe and so critical that his chances for survival for survival were nearly impossible. The doctor told them, in fact, Matt's wounds are so severe that he had to be transported 40 miles south of Laramie to a hospital in Fort Collins, Colorado, that was better equipped to deal with head injuries. Wow. Imagine hearing that. Dude, I can't. Judy and Dennis would would have to wait an entire day before they would be able to like even leave to get on a plane Mm. to leave Saudi Arabia. Mm. 
not only that, but they were 8,000 miles away, Mm -hmm. which probably easily could have been a 24-hour flight or more. Yeah. I can't even imagine being a parent and knowing that my child is pretty much dying in a hospital and I can't immediately be there. Yeah. I mean, even like a 30-minute drive sounds like too much. Yeah. Yeah. But... 8,000 miles, I cannot imagine. days away from reaching your child. Literally days, It makes me want to puke. To make matters worse, they had very limited information as to what had happened to Matt. They only knew he was attacked because of how horrific his injuries were. So, like, the nurses and the doctors were like, this isn't, you know, this wasn't a car crash. This wasn't anything. Like, this was somebody intentionally attacking him. How gut-wrenching. So, Matt was supposed to be a Christmas baby, but Judy went into labor three weeks early. She she ended up having a C-section, and Matt was born December 1st, 1976. He was jaundiced, so Judy had to go home empty-handed and was without him for a week while he stayed in the hospital for treatment. Mm -hmm. And in the book, she said that this just put her in a huge depression. Like, it just felt so weird to leave her baby. Yeah. Which I know a lot of moms have to do that. Mm-hmm. I didn't, but I, I really could not imagine leaving my child at the hospital. I guess things are different nowadays. Well, I guess 14 years ago when I had Ansley because she had jaundice and we just had to take her to the hospital every day for about the first two weeks. Mm-hmm. And they would put her in like this like clear encasement. I don't know how to even say it, like with yeah. a light. Mm-hmm. And uh, we'd have to do that every day. Yeah. But we didn't have to leave her. I can't imagine. That's good. Yeah. Um, when either Autumn or Silas was born, I can't remember which one they had to do that with, with them. Mm-hmm. But they only did it while my mom was, like, still in the hospital. Oh, good. So, it w- must not have been bad. Right, yeah. I think all of us were pretty jaundiced, but they it wasn't so bad that we had to have that. They just kind of were like, you know, just sit in the sun with them, mm-hmm. you know, like sit by a window or something. And mm-hmm. and that's what happened with Titus, too. They were like, you know, he's a little yellow, just, you know, sit in the sunlight with him. And that's yeah. what I did. So Matt was a very cranky and colicky baby, and he did not sleep for more than a couple of hours. He was allergic to milk, and he spit everything back up. He was almost 18 months old when he took his first steps because he simply preferred to bounce around in his bouncy walker. (laughs) A little stubborn guy. Right. I mean, that's almost two. That's crazy. Yeah. He was also a late talker, too. But you wouldn't know it because he talked so much once he figured out how, (laughs) according to Judy. And Judy felt that her and Matt had a symbiotic relationship considering Dennis was gone a lot of the time and it was just her and Matt at home. Mm -hmm. Judy said that they communicated through playing and reading. And Matt's favorite books were Where the Wild Things Are, The Berenstain Bears, and Anything by Dr. Seuss. Cute. He also loved to play dress up. Judy has pictures of him wearing her curlers (laughs) and him wearing his dad's cowboy hats, baseball hats, and hard hats. Matt also loved to be the center of attention, which worried Judy when she became pregnant with her second son, Logan. Uh (laughs) She felt that Matt would not respond well to having someone to share the attention with. And Judy says in her book that she never saw this, but Matt used to step on Logan's fingers (laughs) to make him cry. (laughs) 
Or he would push his hands out from under him <laughs> so that he would like fall, fall when he was crawling. <laughs> <Yes>. Oh, no. <laughs> um, Matt also used to tease Logan saying that he was supposed to be the library because Logan's room was originally supposed to be a library. <laughs> And Judy said that that joke lasted for as long as Matt was alive. Wow. So over time, Matt developed a bond with Logan. Judy recounts a story where Matt had left a note on the stairway for her and Dennis to see when they got home from a night out that said, I hope you remember to get something for Logan because he still expects the Easter Bunny to come and leave presents. <laughs> and apparently they had gotten candy and colored eggs, but they hadn't gotten a present. So <laughs> she said that he saved them that night from, <laughs> you know, disappointing their child. How cute. And although Matt loved to be the center of attention, it never came at the expense of someone else. Matt was extremely empathetic at such a young age that it shocked everyone. One Christmas, Matt climbed onto his grandmother's lap and said, Grandma, did something happen? Do you feel bad? You don't look happy. And his grandmother was just so shocked and was like, how can he tell? How does the seven-year-old know how I feel? How can he be so empathetic? Mm -hmm. Which is crazy because like a lot of times little kids are not empathetic. Right. And as Matt got older and started to become more familiar with the neighbors, this is my favorite thing. This is so cute. It makes me want to cry. Okay. He would write little poems and illustrate them with stick figures and hope of lifting spirits. And then he would leave them in different mailboxes along their street. That's so cute. Literally, that is so sweet. Like, he is literally like, I'm going to write Make little poems. Stay. Yeah, and just make them happy. That's so sweet. But Judy's dad was a postmaster, and she figures he kind of told Matt that it was actually illegal to put unauthorized mail in someone's mailbox. So instead, you know what he would do? He started putting stamps on them and actually going through the post office? No, he started putting really pretty rocks inside of their mailboxes <laughs> instead, and I think that's so cute. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Oh, my goodness. So, uh, Matt, you know, grows up and now he's in high school. He was voted a peer counselor, which was basically just like a designated person that students in his class could talk to about their issues that they didn't feel, um, you know, completely comfortable sharing with an adult. That's amazing. I know. Imagine like your your class just being like, this is the person that we want to talk to because they care. Wow. I know. Wow. So here's a quote directly from the, from Judy's book. And I just kind of wanted to put this whole quote in there because I could not reword this to be any more beautiful. Mm-hmm. As anyone who knew him would have guessed, Matt was a natural at the job. His high school friends later told me that the best thing about talking to Matt was the way he made everyone feel that they were the only ones in the world at that moment. That he was focused entirely on them. That he really listened to them. My mother had told Matt, The Lord gave us two ears and one mouth for a reason. We need to listen twice as much as we need to talk. I guess Matt, I guess Matt took that to heart. Aww. And that's just, to me, just so yeah. sweet. Yeah, that's beautiful. Matt loved and cared so much. 
He would absorb everything that was said and he would become sad and worry relentlessly about his friends, Mm -hmm. even crying from time to time about their problems, especially if he didn't have a solution to give them. What an awesome soul. I know. I know. (sighs) But Matt used acting as an outlet for all of the overwhelming emotions that he had. He started acting when he was in elementary school. He was one of the youngest members ever of Casper's Community Theater Group, Stage 3. He was cast in a bunch of productions at Casper College. And when he wasn't on the stage, he worked as a crew member working backstage on... um, Oh, what the heck did I just write? Working backstage on uh, many shows. And this proved to Judy that this wasn't a need, you know, to be in the spotlight but more about, you know, the creativity of it all. Mm-hmm. Matt also became interested in politics at a young age. At seven years old, he would stuff envelopes for a local candidate and even campaign for an environmental group that was trying to get the city of Casper to create a recycling program. Wow. At seven years old. Mm-hmm. So Judy started to wonder if Matt might be gay. Mm-hmm. She's not sure exactly why or when the thought first occurred to her, but she usually tells people that it was when Matt dressed up as Dolly Parton for Halloween <laughs> two years in a row. Oh my gosh, <laughs> I love it. I know. <laughs> Judy had limited experience around gay people, so a lot of her assumptions about his probable sexuality came from the stereotypes that she knew. Mm-hmm. Either that or perhaps a mother just knows these things. Mm-hmm. The thought of Matt being gay frightened Judy, Mm -hmm. not for any religious or moral reasons, but she worried as to what being gay would mean for him as he grew up. Of course. She instantly assumed that Matt would never be able to have a family of his own, which just really upset her because a lot of her happiness came from having her own family. Judy didn't share her intuition about his sexuality with anyone because she was very limited on her knowledge about she was very limited on her knowledge about people who are gay and she feared that people would feel differently about matt Mm -hmm. she feared that he would be treated differently or even that someone would hurt him yeah well we're talking like 80s right yeah i mean hell even today it's scary for mothers yeah and for for gay people oh yeah especially for gay people Mm -hmm. especially Mm mm-hmm So Matt was a lot shorter and smaller than his peers, which really bothered him the older he got. And then in high school, he was diagnosed with ADD, which ended up making sense because he struggled in school. Judy felt as though Matt had enough on his plate without the prospect of him being gay. So she kept her hunches to herself, but tried to educate herself as best as she could with what limited resources there was out in the world which wasn't much aside from the news talking about gay people and HIV and AIDS. Mm -hmm. So in 1993, the job market in Wyoming became pretty much non-existent. Dennis got a job in New Mexico with another oil company, but he would have to be away from the family for months at a time. It was obvious that the shepherds were going to have to move in order for them to be able to spend any time together. And so their choices were either to move to New Mexico, which was where Dennis was currently working, or he could accept another offer with Saudi um, Aramco. 
Aramco. I really don't know how to pronounce it. It's A-R-A-M-C-O. Um, but it was in Saudi Arabia. Right. They ultimately chose to move to Saudi Arabia because yeah. they figured if they were going to move, they might as well just move. Yeah. Um, but they were worried that their boys would, you know, hate the idea, which... Mm. <laughs> of course. Who right. wants to move to another country? And... Exactly. Right in the middle of your school. Yeah. yeah. But surprisingly, Matt was excited about the idea. Okay. Um, so the company that Dennis was, you know, going to work for paid the employees, high school age children to attend boarding schools anywhere in the world. So this was the thing that kind of made Matt like, this is what I want to do. Yeah. Um, he had thought about making a career in international relations and had been taking German, especially for that reason. So this is another reason why like a boarding school anywhere in the world that he could go to just made sense to him yeah so matt ended up picking a school in switzerland which wasn't his first choice but due to deadlines he had um more limited options Mm -hmm. the foreign language opportunities really drew matt in and made him excited upon arriving to his new boarding house which was described as a castle-esque mansion cool it ended up being a huge letdown oh no Matt obviously didn't want his mom to leave him there, but at that point, there wasn't really a choice. So the school advised Judy to not contact him often so that he could better acclimate to the school, mm-hmm. which he eventually did. Um, so calling from Switzerland, Switzerland to Saudi Arabia was expensive, so they primarily talked by fax. Wow. They literally faxed each other which is just hilariously terrible to me (laughs) like it's hilarious because it's like you're faxing somebody but it's terrible because like imagine having or first of all imagine being a homesick person and like you just want to talk to your mom but the only way you can talk to her is if you send her like a fax yeah. <laughs> it's, you can't really like get any comfort from that and yeah. it's sad and then imagine being the mom who's like oh my gosh my child's in switzerland i'm in saudi arabia they're not having a good time and all <laughs> i can do is send them a fax like that's so sad oh <sighs> but during or during the second semester of matt's senior year the students were allowed to take a trip without a chaperone so mm. exciting right yeah Matt and about a dozen of his friends decided to go to Morocco. And Matt in Switzerland at this boarding school, he did very well. Like, he flourished. Um, He made tons of friends. And he was always the type to make friends. Like, he was always the one that could just go up to anybody and just spark a conversation. And Mm -hmm. he wasn't shy about it. He just loved to talk to people. He loved the diversity. He loved all of that. Mm -hmm. But he really flourished in Switzerland for whatever reason. It's like he had, um, like Judy in the book described it as like a lot of people have, you know, like a lot of acquaintances Mm -hmm. and then people will have like, you know, those, you know, few best friends. Mm -hmm. But Matt was the type of person to, who wanted to build strong relationships with everybody. That's awesome. Isn't that cool? Yeah. Like I'm not that way. It's like, 
I don't have the emotional capacity no, to kind no, of do that. But no, I, I say that all the time. I'm like, I'm cool with the group I have. I'm not in this to make friends. Like, right? <laughs> you know, exactly. That's too much. <laughs> so Matt especially loved what Judy described as cafe culture in Europe. He loved to be able to talk with the locals. One night after a long day of sightseeing with his friends, might still. Matt Matt still felt like exploring, so he left by himself after his group made it back to their hotel. He sought out a bar or a cafe and ended up drinking cappuccinos with a group of German tourists. Matt was ready to call it a night, so he headed back to his hotel, you know, on foot in this strange city that he doesn't know. But unfortunately, on his way back, a group, trigger warning, trigger warning, trigger warning, um, a group of three local men attacked and raped him. Oh. Yes. It's very, very... I actually did not know this until I read the book. Wow. Um, Matt never really discussed the, the details with his mom about the event. Um, she just knows that it happened, pretty much. Mm. And the men who attacked him stole his Doc Martens and his shirt. But did not steal his watch. Matt was able to break free from his attackers and made it back to the hotel bloody and shirtless and shoeless. That is gut-wrenching. So sad. Matt called his mom the next day and told her through tears about the attack. He told her how ashamed and embarrassed he was that it had happened to him. And, you know, he ultimately blamed himself because he had wandered out all by himself. (laughs) Judy and Dennis wanted to hop on a plane right at that moment to get to Matt, but the means of traveling would have taken a longer time than they wanted Matt to be where he currently was. Mm -hmm. So a teacher flew out to be with Matt until he could fly home to Saudi Arabia. Wow. Matt went through a series of physical exams, which included an HIV test. Everything came back fine, and while he was physically okay, Judy said... But those three men in Morocco stole more from Matt that night than his shirt and his shoes. Mm -hmm. They took his confidence, his optimism, and his sense of purpose and place in the world. Oh, my gosh. Like, doesn't that just, like, punch you in the gut? Yes. Oh, that makes me sick. Yeah. Did they find the men? No, they never did. Um, They talk about it in the book. Like, he went to the police and all that, but... um, they kind of, um, they were a little scared to go to the police because they had heard a story of like a 15 year old, like foreign, you know, student being raped by, um, somebody, um, in Saudi Arabia. And, um, they basically wanted to try this victim for, you know, being homosexual, because he was raped by oh, men. Oh, wow. But it's like, because, you know, the the in the Quran, like, homosexuality is punishable by death. Mm-hmm. So they were just a little scared. But yeah, um, apparently it went okay. Like, they were on his side, but okay. they never did catch the men. Wow. After the attack, so much changed with Matt. He started slouching instead of standing up straight and tall. He started wearing clothes that swallowed him whole as if he wanted to hide in them. 
-hmm. He also stopped acting and saying, I can't get up on the stage because I feel like everyone's staring at me. It makes me feel uncomfortable. He really was just robbed of everything. Literally of everything. Like, at this moment, it just declines Mm -hmm. and declines and declines. Like, it's so sad. Matt also began having nightmares where he would wake up screaming in the middle of the night, drenched in sweat. His psychiatrist diagnosed him with depression, post-traumatic stress disorder, and anxiety attacks. He was prescribed a number of different drugs, but nothing seemed to help him. This, I'm just sitting here thinking, like, that just rips at my heart, like, how an event like that can just change a person. It literally can alter your entire being. Like, the moment that that happens, you were a completely different person. Mm -hmm. It's... It's in. It's insane. Like, mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, after graduating high school in 1995, Matt moved to Salisbury, North Carolina, where he enrolled at Catawba Catawba College. This was the alma uh, mater of his favorite teacher in Switzerland, but it was also ranked in the top 10 theater colleges in the country. Judy and Dennis hoped that this meant that Matt was finally doing better and, um, you know, he was healing from what happened to him because it seemed he was interested in theater again. Yeah. Another thing that indicated that Matt might be returning to his normal self was his disregard for time zones. (laughs) One night, 3 a.m. in Saudi Arabia, Judy's phone blared in the air. It was 7 p.m. in North Carolina when Matt called his mom. The following conversation is taken directly from Judy's book. Hello, I coughed as anxiousness seemed to strangle my throat. Mom, he answered in a whisper that did nothing to calm my nerves. Matt, what is it? What time is it? Mom, I need to tell you something, he said. What do you need to tell me? I need to tell you that I'm gay. It took Judy a minute to respond. She had thought about having this conversation with him over the years, but had never really gotten down exactly what her response would be. She simply said, What took you so long to tell me? (laughs) She explained to him that she has always known, but was waiting for him to figure it out himself. Judy says in her book, if it were possible to hear stress release from a person's (laughs) body, I could hear it fall off Matt's back and shoulders that night. God, yeah. What a weight. I know. I know. Crazy. Mm, That gives me cold chills. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So Matt told his mom that He wasn't ready for his dad to know yet, but the next morning she told it us anyways. Oh, goodness. (laughs) Um, Okay, I lost where I was. Hold on. Okay, 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 okay. Um, Okay. Um, So she told Dennis anyways, and after having thoughts of doubt, he eventually accepted it. The only issue, though, is that Dennis couldn't say anything to Matt about it until Matt decided to tell him himself. Mm-hmm. And it would be a few years before that could happen. Wow. Matt started dating someone in North Carolina, which is, you know, the main reason Judy thought he had come out to her. 
Judy also learned that Matt's roommate was homophobic and constantly threw beer cans at him accompanied by slurs. Oh, no. Yeah. But the school was able to deal with it, and Matt's new roommate was nice, but he grew marijuana (laughs) in their dorm room. Jesus. (laughs) So after a while, Matt fell into a depression and stopped attending his classes, not because of the marijuana, but just going through it. Right. Um, He figured that moving would help him overcome the state he was in. So he moved 150 miles east to, um, I covered a story one time and this was a place and I was saying it wrong. Is it Raleigh? Raleigh. It's Raleigh. Okay. It's. So he moved to Raleigh and started uh, work at a video store. He began seeing a new therapist, which he was excited about because they used a special blink therapy that was supposed to help PTSD. Hmm. Matt frequented the local gay bars dressed in makeup and flashy clothing, which was all well with his mom, but she worried about all of the drinking mixed with his medications. Um. So... Living everywhere that he had ever lived, Matt never really witnessed racism until moving to the South. It troubled him greatly, especially because he saw a Ku Klux Klan rally when he was living in Salisbury. Mm -hmm. So after living here for six months, he decided to move again to Casper. Um, Judy had also decided to return to Wyoming because Logan was attending a boarding school in Minnesota. Judy figured she would move to Wyoming and work on her master's degree in um, Elizabethan history and U.S. constitutional law at Casper College. Matt and Judy decided to get apartments in the same complex together Mm. instead of, like, actually living together. Uh Uh-huh. So that they both, you know, kind of had their own space, but they were, you know, close Still enough. Close. Yeah, that they could just like, hi, neighbor, <laughs> you know. Um, and so they were both very excited about this. That's so sweet. They would, you know, have movie nights and they would, you know, sit and have long conversations together. But after a short time of living in the same complex, Matt decided to follow his friend Romaine Patterson to Denver. And this was another move to hopefully to hopefully fix the problems that Matt was facing. And according to Judy, things really did start to look up for Matt in Denver. He's so well-traveled. He really is. I know. I'm actually thinking, like... Imagine being, what, like, 20? Literally, like, 19 and 20 and just, like... Having lived all across the world. Crazy. Switzerland, Saudi Arabia. You've been to Morocco. You've been to... And, like, if... I'm like I'm 25. I could never just be like, "Hey, mom, um, we live in the same apartment complex, but I'm gonna move to a different state." Yeah, I would never. I could never. I'm not like I'm too codependent on my family to right. do that. I, I was gonna say I love his independence. He's just, such independence. Yeah, that's some bullshit my brother would do. He'd just be like, <laughs> by the way, I'm moving like five states away. See ya. And he'd be like. Okay, bye. (laughs) Could never be me. So, um, Matt spent his free time hanging out at Dyed Rich Coffee Shop, which is just such a cool name, like Mm -hmm. D-I-E-D dash rich, Dyed Rich Coffee Shop, where Romaine worked. 
Later, Romaine told Judy that Matt's favorite drink was a skim milk latte. Mm -hmm. Matt's depression was only getting worse. He was prescribed an antidepressant and something for anxiety. But he didn't take them like he was supposed to, which I think a lot of people who take medicine like Mm -hmm. this are the same exact way where when, you know, things are going good and you're feeling good, you forget to take your medicine or you think like, I'm feeling good. I don't need it today. Mm -hmm. And um, then when things start to get really bad, that's when you start to take it. Mm -hmm. So your medicine is not working properly because it's not not in your system like consistently right yeah um so he was also still just drinking pretty heavily so that just the mix of all that just wasn't good so judy retired to saudi arabia and after another horrible round of depression where his aunt actually wait 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 Okay, okay. Judy moved back to Saudi Arabia. And after another horrible round of depression with Matt, his aunt actually took him to a hospital. And this is when he decided to move back to Laramie. The idea was to go back home and try to get healthy and focus on school. Judy and Dennis decided that they were going to give Matt the money he needed for his apartment and other bills so that hopefully he would focus on his schooling and trying to gain a better mental state. Um, Because the job he had in Denver, just he hated it. And, you know, they just thought like, you know, maybe if we just pay for his apartment Mm -hmm. and, you know, give him an allowance, he can focus more on his, you know, life, Mm -hmm. going to school and his mental health. But Mm -hmm. unfortunately, you know, he started spending the money that his parents were giving him on his social life. Mm Mm-hmm. Judy got word of this and immediately called Matt to chew him out for it. They exchanged a few harsh words before Matt hung up on her, and Judy decided not to call him back. Matt wasn't the type of person to stay angry for very long, and so on that Monday, October 5th, he called his mom and apologized for everything. They shared small talk for a little while, and he told her that he loved her and then hung up. Mm Mm-hmm. Three days later, Judy and Dennis were on their way to Fort Collins to be by Matt's side. So, her last conversation with him was his apology to her. Judy talks about how that last last conversation that her and Matt had was short and the type of conversation that you would have... Hold on. Bless you. Oh, my gosh. I'm so sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Anyways, Judy talks about how that last conversation that her and Matt had was short and the type of conversation that you would have with someone who you knew you would talk to again soon. Yeah. And if the damage to his brain stem was as bad as as the doctors thought, she would never be able to speak with him again. Mm. If Matt wouldn't have called that Monday, they may have never reconciled from the fight that they had had. What a harsh thought. Yes, but thankfully, thankfully, he did. And they were able to be like, I love you, Mom. Mm -hmm. I love you, Sid. So they met with Logan at the airport in Minneapolis and told him what little they knew about Matt. 
Judy walked past a newsstand and saw a story in the newspapers, er, in two newspapers, the New York Times and the the Minneapolis Star Tribune. The headline to one read, gay man beaten and left for dead to our charge. No fucking way. Yeah. Oh my God. This confused her because she didn't yet understand the gravity of what had happened to her son. So, Matt was in a coma due to the severity of trauma that was done to his skull and brainstem. He needed a ventilator in order to breathe, and his temperature was fluctuating between 98 and 106 degrees. There were bandages all over his head and tubes sticking out everywhere, which were aiding in keeping him alive. His face was swollen and stitched up. His ear had also been um, stitched up, but it was still bleeding. Judy said that he didn't resemble the mat that they had recently seen at all. As they approached his bed, they began to see the things that stood out to them about their son physically, but they could see that the boy that they knew was gone. Mm. Matt had more than 30 bruises, abrasions, and broken bones. This included several fractures where his skull had crashed in on itself. Oh my god. His brainstem was severely damaged, which is the thing that controls your heartbeat, breathing, temperature, and other involuntary functions. And he also was suffering from hypothermia. Judy and Dennis spoke with the doctor about a do not resuscitate order in case something happened. And they wanted to try in case something happened and they wanted to try to bring him back. Matt had expressed before that if he that he never wanted to be on life support. Mm hmm. They also spoke about how Matt wanted to be an organ donor, but the doctor told them that his blood work had come back and he had tested tested positive for HIV. Oh, wow. Right. Did not know that. And Judy talked about how, like, that was just, you know... Soul crushing. No. no? It was like it went through one ear and out the other because it's like... Well... You know, like if under normal circumstances that would have broken her heart, but mm-hmm. her son lay there with a ventilator right. and his head caved in and, mm-hmm. you know, on the brink of death, it's mm-hmm. like. That doesn't matter in that moment. At that moment, she just, like, it is just nothing compared yeah. to everything else. Right. So Matt was found on Wednesday evening by Aaron. Krefels, Krefels, who was also a student at the University of Wyoming. He was on a mountain bike ride when he fell close to where Matt was laying. And at first he thought Matt was a scarecrow. The closer he got to Matt, the more he realized that he was not a scarecrow, but an actual person tied to a fence. Once the realization hit, he ran over to a blood caked Matt who was unconscious unconscious and barely breathing aaron ran to the closest home and called the police sheriff deputy um, reggie flutie was the first to arrive at the scene laying neat um oh laying near matt was a doe there was literally a doe laying near him wow um it looked as though the doe had been keeping Matt company all the while he was tied to that fence. Wow. Yeah. Wow. But as soon as Reggie approached Matt, the doe ran away. And it's like the doe was protecting him. Yeah. It's like 
like Reggie talked um there's a quote from Reggie in the book and it and she's talking about how you know she, she was like that's the Lord's work that's the Lord's doing like the Lord you know basically put that dough there to keep him company until somebody could find him wow and she was basically saying like the comfort you know she tried to comfort him but the real comfort came from that dough being near him that's amazing yeah crazy um, so initially, initially she thought Matt was, you know, like 13 or 14 years old because he was really little. Mm-hmm. Um, and the rope that was used to tie Matt's hands to the fence was so tight that she had to use a double-bladed boot knife to cut him free. There was blood pulled under his head, in his hair, caked all around his nostrils and all over his face, except... For tracks on each cheek that had been left by tears. Oh my god. Like the only place he did not have blood was where he had been crying and the tears had washed the blood away. That just like sent like a shock through me. Dude, that part, like when I first heard that, like I'm telling you, it's like sob. Oh god. Just sob. Like I can't imagine just seeing... And, I mean, Judy didn't see, but having that, you know, vision of of your son, just blood all over his face, and then there just being tear trails where there's no blood. Like, that is just absolutely heartbreaking. Absolutely heartbreaking. So... His right eye was open and his left eye was shut. There was a gash above his right ear, which was caved in and bubbled up on both sides with a film over it where it had bled continuously. According to Reggie, all the while waiting for the paramedics to arrive, she tried to console and comfort Matt by saying, Baby boy, I'm so sorry this happened to you. What happened to you? And hang in there, son. Help's coming while simultaneously trying to keep his airway cleared. So while Judy and Dennis were trying to spend as much time with Matt as possible, friends, family, and other loved ones come or came to visit him in the ICU. Judy talks about how they spent a lot of the time consoling those around them versus being the ones who were being consoled. And I really started to think about that. And I thought about Anytime I've ever seen, like, something, like a death or something like that, people really do go to the people that it affects the most and they cry to them. Mm-hmm. And they do end up consoling them and, you know, like, giving them a hug or patting them on the back. And it's like, <clears throat> it's so weird how that works, but it, it's like, it's kind of like crying in solidarity, I feel. It's like your heart is broken and you are going to the people that it hurt the most Mm -hmm. and basically crying with them. Like, you know, this person who is so important to you has left an impact on me and I am crying with you, with you. Yeah. Yeah. And you're crying for them, for them too. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's so sad. So, um, She said that she figured because her and Dennis weren't visibly breaking down, everyone thought it would be okay to be the ones breaking down. 
Matt had a lot of people that he did and did not know try to call him or come and visit. There were reporters, screenwriters, journalists, and politicians trying to get in touch with the family, specifically Judy and Dennis. It became so overwhelming that they created a password for friends and families to say when they called the hospital, and that would be the only way Judy and Dennis would take the call. That's smart. Yes. But one day, the hospital CEO told Judy and Dennis that someone had called them and that they didn't give the password, but she thought they may still want to take the call. It just so happened to be President Clinton. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. Judy said that he did a great job in lifting their spirits. And at first, like, Dennis was like, no, I don't give a shit that he's the president of the United States of America. We're not taking his call. Wow. But Judy was like, dude, it's like the president. Like, <laughs> yeah. You know? Yeah. So, uh. What a shame, though. I, I always, I hate that, that the media does that. Oh, me too. You know, like, let these people grieve. My God. Like, at least wait until, like, all is said and done. Like, damn. Leave them the hell alone. Or just never. Yeah. Just never. Okay. Yeah, it's not your fucking business. It's not at all. Disgusting. Judy was so focused on Matt's well-being that a call from the president didn't quite register with her at how much of an impact Matt's story had on the world. Yeah, it wouldn't. Yeah. There were candlelight vigils being held in cities all around the world. Ellen DeGeneres was standing on the steps of the U.S. Capitol addressing thousands of people and people were marching on Fifth Avenue in New York City. Mm. 500 people had also gathered in Laramie on behalf of Matt. This tragedy truly struck the world. The family had hoped that maybe Matt's condition would get better, but I think they knew in the long run that it never would. Sunday came, which was three days after Judy, Dennis, and Logan arrived at the hospital and five days since Matt was found tied to that fence and brought to the hospital. A nurse called the Shepherd's family after they had left to go get some rest. Matt's blood pressure had become so much more erratic and unstable and that he was starting to fail. They rushed back to the hospital along with Judy's brother, Dennis's father, some other uh, family and friends, and a priest. They gathered around Matt's bed to say their final goodbyes. The nurse took the ventilator out of Matt's mouth, and he immediately began to choke. And Logan, the little brother, at first just, Judy said he just fell to the floor, just like, you know, there's a little bit of hope there. Judy described it as Matt trying to prove that he still had some fight left in him, but ultimately everything stopped. And on Monday, October 12th at 12:53 a.m. Matthew Wayne Shepherd passed away. He was cremated and put into an oak box with a mountain scene on the top. Mm-hmm. Judy and Dennis shifted their focus on trying to find the people who had killed their son. Yeah. They spoke with detectives Rob Debris and Jeff Burry to catch up on what they had missed. So, this is kind of like the the layout of what they had gathered. Matt had only been in school for about a month on October 6th, 
but he was already a part of the Lesbian, Gay, Bisexual, and Transgendered Alliance, the LGBTA. The group had gotten together that night to make their final plans for Gay Awareness Week, which was going to kick off with National Coming Out Day that following Sunday. The meeting continued at the Village Inn, which was a diner restaurant about a mile from the university. The group drank coffee and ate cherry pie, but eventually, you know, it was time for the meeting to end and everyone was heading home. But Matt, like always, wasn't ready to turn in for the night. Mm -hmm. And so he tried to convince the whole group to go with him to the Fireside Lounge. But it was a weeknight and no one wanted to go. And these same friends really didn't know Matt too well. I mean, it had only been six days. Yeah. Or not six days, I'm sorry. It had only been a month. Mm -hmm. And um, they didn't think that he would go by himself. But that's not who Matt was. Mm -hmm. Matt was totally, completely fine Mm -hmm. being by himself. Yeah. So they dropped him off at his apartment. And he basically immediately got into his Bronco and headed to the bar. He arrived around 1030 and the bartender, Matt Galloway, remembers him sitting down at the bar and ordering a Heineken. This wasn't Matt's first time at the bar. Galloway remembers serving Matt five or six other times. Matt stood out to him because he was always so well-dressed, polite, and one of the best tippers that came in. Mm -hmm. Galloway told the police, he was one of the most polite persons I've ever met in my life. Mm Mm-hmm. About an hour later, two people entered the bar, Aaron McKinney and Russell Henderson. They stood out to the bartenders because they ordered a pitcher of beer and paid for it entirely with quarters and dimes. Ew. Yeah. I already hate them. (laughs) Yeah. At some point, Matt and McKinney and Henderson started up conversation and the bartender noticed them exit the bar together. It's a mystery as to why Matt left with them, but whatever the reason, McKinney and Henderson had convinced Matt that they were also gay. They also got into McKinney's pickup truck with Henderson in the driver's seat and McKinney in the passenger seat, and Matt was between the two of them. Later, McKinney told police that Matt was hitting on him and grabbing his crotch and trying to lick his ear. However, Henderson said that he saw none of that happen. They drove the truck down back ways where they ended up near a Walmart. McKinney looked at Matt and said, guess what? We're not gay and you're getting jacked. Like, number one, what a fucking stupid thing to say. What a fucking asshole. It just really pisses me off. He then made Matt give him his wallet, which had $20 in it. McKinney couldn't remember whether he hit Matt with his fist first or with the butt of his Smith & Wesson .357 pistol with an 8-inch barrel. He told police that what set him off was how hard Matt was coming onto him. And Judy says she doesn't believe it's true. But if it were to happen, she can't understand why McKinney would be in such an uproar when he and Henderson had literally told Matt that they were also gay. Yeah. In order to lure him to their truck. Right. So as Henderson drove the truck past the Walmart, McKinney was sitting was hitting Matt in the face, chest, and neck. Henderson stopped the truck by a split rail fence. How disgusting. It's, dude, it's so, it just gets worse. 
McKinney dragged Matt out of the truck, but Matt fought back, kicking him really hard in the chest. But McKinney had already done a number to him in the truck, which made it, you know, more difficult for Matt to, you know, fight. McKinney got Matt on the ground and continued punching, kicking, and hitting him with the butt of his gun all the while. Henderson stood by and laughed. Gross. He's just standing there watching this, like... Just beating the shit out of somebody. Right. Like, Matt's 21 years old and, like, roughly five feet tall. Mm -hmm. Like, he's a little dude. And Henderson's just sitting there laughing. Because he's gay. Because he's gay. That's so disgusting. Yeah. Because he's gay. Um, so... Okay, I lost my place again. Um, he had Matt. In the, okay. Um, okay, so Matt begged for him to stop and even offered to give um, them the, the $150 he had at his apartment if they would just let him go. But McKinney never let up. Henderson retrieved some rope from the truck and McKinney ordered him to tie Matt to the fence. Henderson was a former Eagle Scout. He tied Matt's hands behind his back with the backs of his hands facing each other Mm -hmm. and then tied them to the fence. Henderson realized how much trouble he was going to get in for this, so he told McKinney to stop. And for a split second, he did. But only to just whack Henderson in the mouth with the butt of his gun. Mm. So McKinney also began to worry that he would be caught for what he has done to Matt. So just like in Morocco with the three rapists, McKinney took Matt's shoes and threw them in the back of his truck. He took them because he figured Matt would have had a hard time walking home without them. This didn't quite settle his fear though. So, in a last attempt effort, he asked Matt if he could read the license plate on the back of his truck, which Matt said he could, and then he read 665 AD back to him. Damn. Matt is headstrong. Like, he's sitting here like, you just beat the shit out of me, but yes. guess what? Yeah. I still can fucking read it, bitch. Yeah. God. But this enraged McKinney. This just pissed him him off that he did not beat this you know enough didn't beat him enough right so he made sure that matt would never be able to speak about what had happened to him ever again by hitting him three times in the head with the butt of his pistol the blows crushed matt's skull and caved in caved it in behind his right ear those three blows were what ended matt's life those three blows were the cause of the coma and making him go unconscious. McKinney and Henderson got back in the truck and drove to downtown Laramie, leaving Matt to die tied to that fence. They ended up running into two dudes who were vandalizing cars, Jeremy Herrera and Emiliano Morales. Somehow things went south and McKinney ended up getting his pistol and hitting Morales over the head with it. It was the most sickening sound I ever heard in my life, said Herrera. Just that one blow was enough to nauseate him. I cannot imagine what it must have been like for Matt. I mean, he was being hit in the head relentlessly. Oh, my God. 
Herrera ends up whacking McKinney over the head with a club. And Judy said, after receiving what must have amounted to little more than a hint of the viciousness he dealt with Matt, McKinney retreated. After being in the hit in the head once with a hard object, mm-hmm. you know, he was like, that's enough for me. I'm leaving. Yeah. But he just destroyed Matt's skull. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> Officer Flint Waters got a call about a possible vandalism around 7th and Harney, but when he showed up, he ran into McKinney and Henderson, who made a run for it. Officer Waters chased Henderson and was able to catch him and handcuff him within minutes. Waters called for an ambulance because of the gash above Henderson's lip, you know, from where McKinney bashed him in the face, Mm -hmm. and then he arrested him. The ambulance picked him up and Waters went to the truck to investigate. He found a pistol rug and immediately radioed the officer searching in the area that the other guy may be armed. Laying in the back of the truck was a big pistol with a hammer cocked back. It was soaked in blood. Waters raced to the hospital to question Henderson. He told the officer that he was worried that his girlfriend would be worried about him So, Officer Waters called her to let her know that Henderson was okay. His girlfriend mentioned Aaron McKinney in the call, so that's what led Officer Waters to tie him to, you know, Henderson. There wasn't enough evidence to keep Henderson in custody, so Officer Waters told him that he was free to go after his hospital visit, but that if they found someone with a bullet hole, he would have to visit McKinney and Henderson again. To which Henderson re- laughed and replied, I guarantee you are not going to find anybody with a bullet in them. So I wonder, he had this gun, he crushed Matthew's skull, he hit him repeatedly. Why didn't he shoot him? I don't know. I, I mean, I feel video. like you should have just done that and got it over with. Instead of just torturing yeah. him? Yeah. And then he spends five days in ICU? Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. Just I wanted, wonder. Just, I guess it, he just wanted to torture him. I think so, too. He was getting off on that shit. He just thought, like, shooting him is not enough. I have to beat him. Yeah. Because he's gay. Because I hate him. Yeah. Because he's gay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <sighs> so, searching the truck again, officers found Matt's shoes and Henderson's boss brand jacket. They found a Hilltop National Bank card with the name Matthew Shepard, which initially made the police think that there that this was a robbery. But the amount of blood in the car was not synonymous with a robbery. Henderson's girlfriend, Chastity Chastity Paisley, was a student at Wyoming University where she worked part-time in the student union building. It wasn't far off to assume that she had been working with the LGBTA to help prepare for Gay Awareness Week. But when Henderson told her about what he and McKinney did to a gay guy, she did absolutely nothing. Hmm. Like, she did not. Like, he literally was like, yo, we just beat the shit out of, like, this gay guy. Yeah. And, like, you know, he's probably dead. And she's just like, oh, cool. Yeah. Okay. What do you I mean? Cool. Fuck her. Really? October 16th was the day of Matt's memorial service service which was held in the city park across the street from St. Mark's um I don't even know how to pronounce this it's Episcopal Church 
Episcopal. Episcopal? Uh, yep. Episcopal, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. Mark's Episcopal Church. <laughs> well, most of the community came together to support Matt and his family. There was also a number of people who wanted the opposite for them. While the town was putting up ribbons in their storefronts and women, women were volunteering to clean the sanctuary where the mor- memorial would be held, Reverend Fred Phelps and his Westboro Baptist Church planned to protest Matt's memorial service. They held signs that said, God hates the F word. Ugh. And Ugh. Matt in hell. Shut up. City officials in Casper gathered together to make sure that Phelps' madness would be as far away as legally possible from the memorial service. Oh my God. They ended up banning any demonstrations on public property within 50 feet of the service. So they ended up having a roped off part of the park across the street. The police stationed bomb sniffing dogs outside of the church. There was a SWAT team in a van across the street and Dennis was asked to wear a bulletproof vest when addressing the press. My God. Yes. Even though everything was crazy outside, the serenity inside of the church hadn't been disturbed. Apparently, Elton John had bought out every local flower shop and sent the flowers to the memorial service. Yeah. Wow. Isn't that crazy? Wow. What a beautiful influence, though, he was. Just Just on everyone. Yeah. And just, you know, like I said, I didn't know, like, deep details about the story, but everybody knows Matthew Shepard. Yeah. But... You have done a beautiful job just speaking about him and his influence. You know, it's crazy because, like, when you read stories about people, like, you can empathize with them and you're like, wow, that's so sad and blah, Mm -hmm. blah, 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 blah. But when you really, like, research Matthew Shepard, you feel like you know him. Mm -hmm. Like, you Mm -hmm. take it personally when you hear just everything that has happened in mm-hmm. his life and it it's just... amazing that there is so much info out there and that's kind of the sh- the the s- sad part about doing these true crime uh stories is so often there's not a lot of info about the victim right so we just kind of have to do the best that we can with these things you know but i love that there's so much info about you know his legacy and and you know, just the person he was and, you know, that's, yes, that's yes. amazing. And, that's, and you've done an awesome job. Like this has probably been one of my favorite, like top three that you've done. Thank you. Well, I mean, I can tell you're into it. I really can't even take any of the credit because I literally was just reading Judy's book and yeah, I just noted still, down what stood out to me the most, but I really wanted to, because when I, whenever I think about Matthew Shepard, I really do think it's like, He's the, you know, the little gay guy who was beaten to death and left on a fence to die. And I feel like that's what most people know. That is what most people know. But, I mean, just like in the beginning, she's like, there's so much more to him Mm -hmm. than being gay and being murdered. I love that she wrote that book. Me, I really love it, too. And, I mean, again, I really suggest that everybody, everybody... Mm -hmm go read that book or listen to the audible because hearing her speak it just it hit different yeah anyways um so 
McKinney and Henderson were originally charged with attempted murder, kidnapping, and aggravated robbery. But after Matt's death in ICU, the charges were upgraded from attempted murder to first-degree murder. The girlfriends of McKinney and Henderson were both charged with being accessories after the fact. Mm -hmm. McKinney's trial began began on October and continued into November of 1999. McKinney and his lawyer tried to push a gay panic defense... Uh, I know, so sick. Please. So sick. But it was thankfully rejected by the judge. And like, if it wouldn't have been, it would have, it would have made me so angry because he literally, he literally told Matt, hey, me and Henderson are gay. He lured, they lured him to the truck. Gay panic? Fuck yeah. off. Like, if you were so panicked because Matt was gay, then you would have never said that you were gay. Like, if you... <sighs> No. no. I panicked so much I invited him to the truck. Yeah. And and also said I was gay. Idiot. Yeah. The jury found him guilty of felony murder instead of premeditated murder. Judy and Dennis brokered a deal that resulted in McKinney not receiving the death penalty, but serving two consecutive life sentences without the possibility of parole. Henderson and McKinney were incarcerated in the Wyoming State Penitentiary penitentiary were but were later transferred to other prisons due to overcrowding judy has worked as an advocate for lgbt rights the matthew shepherd foundation by judy and dennis in december of 1998 um <laughs> what'd you do they founded the matthew shepherd foundation um in 1998 is basically what I was trying to write, but mm-hmm. instead wrote something entirely different. The Matthew Shepard Foundation is a nonprofit that runs education, outreach, and advo- advocacy programs. And I was actually reading a, a bit about it on Wikipedia. And they have um, they have a, like a lot of honestly pretty helpful resources. They have something called Matthews place or something like that and it's basically like a safe space community very cool and i don't know i think i'm gonna link that when we um post about the episode because Mm -hmm. that's awesome it seemed like a good resource scotty just texted me yeah he was just calling me Uh, he said is everything okay i haven't heard from Melissa at all (laughs) i know i i literally have one more line and then i'll be done and Mm -hmm. i'm gonna text him so, June of 2019, Matthew was one of the inaugural 50 American Pioneers, Trailblazers, and Heroes inducted on the National LGBTQ Wall of Honor within the Stonewall National Monument in New York City, Stonewall Inn. Very cool. And to me, it's just like, that was literally in 2019, and this all happened like... 20 years before. Yes. No, well, 30 years. 30, yeah. Right? Wait. No. 20. Yes. 20. Yes. 20 years. And um, it's just, it's crazy to me, like, the impact that Matthew had on... The nation. On, the world. Yes. Like, even to this day, you know? It's such a shame that it had to happen like that. But so glad that, you know... I guess he was who he was and he stood up for what he believed in and, you know, just that now people are 
respecting that. I don't yeah. know. Yeah, Judy talked a lot about how, you know, during this whole thing, she just didn't realize. She had no idea. Like, she kept saying, like, you know, why are all these people who don't even know Matt wanting to be at his memorial? Because there were so many people who just didn't personally know them who just wanted to be there so badly. And mm-hmm. she was like, they just want to be here because it's a spectacle. Right. But then later on, she realizes, like, no, just he has touched so many people. His story has touched so many people mm-hmm. and has changed so many people. And they wanted to be there because they were truly mourning for him. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's, that's, a, that's possible, that you can mourn someone that you never even knew. Absolutely. I'm sitting here for him after hearing this and just, like, I feel like my heart's been ripped out of my chest. Yes. You know, and the way that Judy writes, it's just like, gosh, she just knows how to punch you in the gut, dude. Mm-hmm. I'm telling you, like, I mean, it's all personal experience. I know? mean, yeah, she's literally just writing, speaking from her soul, right? Speaking from just, it's just a fact. It's what happened, and mm-hmm. she's, and I hope that if for whatever reason she ever hears this episode for whatever reason i hope that i did it some justice and that she doesn't get upset by it because i know a lot of times people can because i think you did a great job definitely top three thank you thank Mm -hmm. you thank you okay um i just talked for like an hour and 30 minutes so (laughs) um i guess we're gonna take a break and then we'll be back with brooke's long ass story bye Hello, we are back again. Welcome, 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 welcome back. Um, this evening, I am doing a story on a really awful individual. Well, first of all, it's not this evening. It's literally twelve seventeen a.m. Sorry, this morning. <laughs> so Alyssa just ended her story. Well. Her story was based off of a beautiful human who left a beautiful legacy. And now I'm about to tell the story of a pretty shit human. So we have exact opposite stories. Basically. Gotcha. Uh, So my story is about Ethan Couch, who also, Alyssa, you may, when I mention this part, know who this guy is. But he is also known as the affluenza teen. Mm, No. Okay. So I really quickly would like to give a definition of affluenza. Okay. So that is uh, defined as the inability of an individual to understand the consequences of their actions because of their social status or economic privilege. Oh, okay. Okay. So with that being said, we're going to get this story started, and I will cite my sources. This was actually a case with a ton of information. I didn't have to dig really deep. Um, So literally, I used Wikipedia and dmagazine.com. dmagazine.com had a very, 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 very descriptive, just good article on this. I love when that happens. Yeah, it was fantastic. It really was. So it was a huge help. Anyway, so Ethan Anthony Couch was born on April 11th, 1997 to Fred and Tanya Couch, and he grew up in Burleson, Texas. 
Texas. Another Texas story. I know. I don't know why that happens. Who would have? Who would have guessed? Who would have thought? <laughs> Fred and Tanya both had been previously married, and Tanya brought two older children into the new marriage, and they had Ethan together. Tanya had a job as a vocational nurse, but she was fired when it was found out that she had hidden a DUI arrest. Ooh. Yeah, can't really be nursing with a DUI. With a DUI. She then started as a receptionist for her husband, Fred's company. Fred was 21 when he started his company, which was Claiborne Sheet Metal. It became a huge success, and it allowed the family to live a very luxurious lifestyle. Must be nice. Mm-hmm. What? Shut up. You live a luxurious <laughs> oh, life. It. Here you go. fred was known as the rough and rowdy type and he didn't take shit from anybody and he had a really short fuse fred and tanya fought frequently and they finally divorced in 2006 before signing off on the divorce the judge ordered psychological exams on both of the parents and ethan hmm a social worker was assigned to interview Fred and Tanya separately and talk to Ethan at both homes. The report ran nine pages long. Wow. <clears throat> Fred claimed that his and Tanya's marriage had been, and I quote, a mistake from the start. Dang, that's yeah. rough. He said that Tanya had a pill addiction and that she'd given pills to nine-year-old Ethan several times. Oh my gosh. Mm-hmm. He said that she'd threatened to commit suicide and that she referred to their young son as her protector. He also said that Tanya moved Ethan's bed into her bedroom, which he slept in every night. Weird. Yeah, that can cause some mommy issues, I feel. Oof. Tanya said that Fred had been verbally and physically abusive towards her. I'm sure he was because of that short fuse. Mm -hmm. She said he'd call her horrible names, that he often grabbed her by the hair, and that he once threw her into a fireplace. Oh my gosh. It was very tumultuous. Sounds like it. She said Fred pushed and choked her, or I'm sorry, choked the daughter from her first marriage, and that he had threatened to burn the house down. Oh, the moment he touched my child, I would leave. Ethan's half-sister told the social worker that she had seen Fred slap her mother when she was pregnant with Ethan. Oh, my gosh. Tanya also accused him him of having multiple affairs and manipulating family members with money. Well, that just sounds like a big good Mm -hmm. Fred was uh, known to have a short fuse, as I said, and a psychologist later testified he'd been angry since childhood. He was a big guy, kind of rednecky, didn't take shit from nobody. And there's a number of times where he had disagreements with people and he wants to go outside and settle it. He has oh, roughed people up and gosh. he's loud. Grow up. Yeah. Sounds Grow like a big, big rednecky loser. Grow up. Both parents admitted that they never followed court-mandated visitation schedules. Ethan mostly lived with his mother in a 4,000-square-foot ranch house on six acres in Burleson, the home that Fred had lost in the divorce. The giant home had a pool, a playground, a barn, and a 6,000-square-foot workshop out back. What kind of playground? I don't know. That sounds cool. Like to have like playground listed, it's got to be like something legit. Like yeah, like it's a not legit a playset. <laughs> no, it's not like one of those wooden playsets. It's like 
a, a playground. playground. <laughs> yeah. So imagine a 6,000 square foot workshop. That's cool and all, but I'm really focused on, <laughs> on the on playground. playground. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just saying the house was 4,000 square feet. Uh, That's a lot of house. Yeah. And then you've got a 6,000 square foot workshop. What? That doesn't even make sense. <laughs> Like, why? I, well, he was a metal worker, so maybe he did some work from home. I don't know. And it had to be bigger than his dang house. Uh-huh. Mm, Interesting. Know. He was a little bit extra. So Fred would stock, stock. Fred would <laughs> stop by a few times a week, and once in a while, Ethan would stay with his father. Though Tanya said that Fred didn't properly supervise Ethan. Fred's response was, I'm not a mom. No, but you're a dad. How dare you? <laughs> Gross. What? You mean I have to watch my kid? I am not a mom. That's a mom duty. That's not yeah. a dad duty. The social worker's report described Ethan as polite and patient. Ethan told the social worker that his favorite subjects in school were math and PE. Oh, that's how you know he's bad. <laughs> math and PE? <laughs> you know, that's how you know he's Wait. bad. He said he liked school and he had good grades despite being absent 50 days during his kindergarten year and more than 40 days of his second grade year. That was literally me, but like in high school. (laughs) Seriously. But when you're absent that many times in kindergarten, second grade, that's your parents. Oh, for sure. That's That's not 100% your parents. These are like the shittiest parents in America. Right. Ethan said that he wished he could see his dad more. He said his parents yelled at each other often, and he wished they wouldn't put him in the middle. The conclusion of the report stated Fred and Tanya Couch continue to exhibit a high degree of animosity and conflict. The biggest concerns were the codependent relationship Ethan has with his mother and the father's lack of a regular and consistent relationship with Ethan, along with the fact that both parents have adultified Ethan and have allowed him to become overly involved in adult issues and decisions. Yeah. Yeah. After spending more than 50 hours with the couches, the social worker thought the family was, and I quote, profoundly dysfunctional. It seems like it. Yeah. (laughs) Around the time of the divorce, Ethan was put into the Anderson School, which is a private academy in Fort Worth. The school has only 20 to 25 students of various ages at any time. Wow, that's not a lot. Yeah. So imagine it's probably very expensive. The whole school is 20 20 to 25 25 students. That's insane. Mm -hmm. To be accepted, the children must have high IQ scores and most are ready for college by the age of 16. Not me. (laughs) Ethan was known as a sweet child who loved school. Tanya was very involved as a mother and was known to volunteer at Ethan's school, go on field trips with the kids, and she donated money to the school. Now, Fred and Tanya, on the other hand, the school had seen those two get into more than one screaming match in the parking lot. God, grow up. Yeah, and almost always in front of young Ethan. Fred once locked the doors of his truck with Ethan inside and threatened to speed away. The police showed up, but nobody got in trouble. <clears throat> when Ethan was just 13 years old, Anderson School employees noticed that he had driven himself to school. <laughs> Imagine a 13-year-old driving himself to school. You know what that makes me think of? What? There's this, like, so Titus likes to watch, um, like, 
compilations on YouTube of like vines or mm-hmm. just random videos and there's this one of like this police chasing this car and this car just pulls into this driveway and stops abruptly. Is it like a four year old? It's not a four year old, but it's like a little kid just jumps out of the driver's seat and runs inside and I'm just always like, What the fuck? how does that happen? I read an article a while back, it was legit like a four year old had stole his parents' car and was like driving down the highway. How? Like, like how does he reach the pedals? He know, but I remember he like told the police officer that he was like going to California to buy a Lamborghini or something. Like it was just craziness. Like Okay. And the kid like made it like miles that's it's not it sounds impossible yeah i'll have to find that article it's cray cray <laughs> kids stealing vehicles oh, i mean he was 13 but still <laughs> that's much better than a four-year-old <laughs> imagine titus driving the family suv down the highway <laughs> just see him driving my car just down the street and the police get him and he's like yeah i'm going to california to buy a lamborghini like what mm. That's oh, scary. Like y'all, oh, it's horrifying. Watch your Imagine kids. looking over in the highway and you see a four-year-old in the driver's <laughs> seat. <laughs> I can't imagine. See Titus's little head look over. Just, he's smoking a cigarette. He's probably just sitting there, like <laughs> doing siren heads. <laughs> oh my like, god! Somebody like looks out their window and he like looks out the window too, and he immediately is just like. <laughs> He would do that, you know he would. Oh my god, that's hilarious. <laughs> so of course, uh principal there is dumbfounded. And so she talks to Fred about it. Mm-hmm. His reaction was shocking, or maybe not by what we know about Fred now. He told me that Ethan was the best driver he knew, she says. He was adamant that Ethan was going to drive to school. He believed his son was better. His son was more talented. He was the golden boy. Plus, he didn't need college. He would soon take over his father's company. Fred's last response was something along the lines of, I'll buy the school. Okay. What a shit. (laughs) My son can drive to school. It's okay. I say so. And if you try to do anything about it, I'll buy the school. I mean, fuck the law. Yeah, exactly. Imagine why this kid's fucked up. Yeah. In the end, Fred withdrew Ethan and enrolled him in a uh, homeschool program. And by the time Ethan was 15, he was done with that, too. No more school for Ethan. He just could not handle authority or any kind of schooling, you know, clearly with parents like this. Right. Yeah. So he just dropped out? Yeah. Okay. Ethan had begun drinking heavily by the age of 14. He was also working part-time at his father's company. Tanya and Fred remarried each other in 2011, and they built a seven... Yeah. (laughs) They remarried each other and built a 7,000 square foot food... uh, Food? Food? A 7,000 square foot food. (laughs) A 7,000 square foot home. Where did I get food? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> on three acres in Fort Worth. You guys have to excuse us. We've been legit recording for like two hours. Okay. So the property includes a two-story guest house and a huge workshop. A workshop that was even bigger than the last home. Bigger than 6,000 square feet. Yes. And they fit all this on three acres? On three acres. They just 
slime engine in there. Did it have a playground as well? I don't know. Ethan didn't really need a playground at 14. I mean, he was driving, so. He was also drinking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, seem, I feel like a playground would be right up his alley, <laughs> honestly. Getting drunk, playing on the swings. Just like on the monkey bars, drinking yeah. upside down. <sighs> Ethan's parents notice him pulling away and becoming more distant. Oh, I thought you meant pulling away, like, in the driveway, like, in the <laughs> like, Probably well, that, care, too. So, what the... <laughs> So he was becoming more distant, um, but they just assumed it was normal teenage behavior. And by January 2013, Ethan was basically living by himself or with his cousin at the older family home. And he was there a few days a week, at least by himself. The older family? The other home. So they just kept both homes? Correct. Wow. His business must have been really good. It was. They had a lot of money. When Ethan stayed there, the house was empty except for a bed, a couch, an Xbox, and a big screen TV. His parents later testified that Ethan was there to get the house ready for sale. What? Yeah, I know, right? 14-year-old getting the house with nothing in there, right? That totally makes sense. Ethan told his friends, though, that he'd had a fight with his dad and that he had kicked him out of the house. Fred would sometimes stop by to check on his teenage son. One morning, he stopped by and found empty beer cans in the garage. When Ethan was asked who they belonged to, he told his dad that they belonged to his older cousin. Something, obviously, that we find out later is not the truth. I mean, we already know he's drinking. You're so 14. Fred Fred pretty much knew he was lying. Great. A different time, Fred noticed that someone had driven the old Firebird that was parked out back. Something that he'd specifically forbidden. As a punishment, Fred grounded Ethan from his truck and made him walk nearly a mile each way to work and back. But Tanya let Ethan borrow her truck. Mind you, again, Ethan is only 15 years old at this time. I don't even have words, honestly. Just nuts. It's very... And this is like... Not that long ago. No, not at all. The, if he was born in 97, I'm older than him. Yeah. So, yeah. It's not, not really the time in this world where that if was a acceptable. 15 year old was driving, it was fine. Yeah. So, around 1 a.m. on a cold night in February of 2013, so we're talking less than 10 years ago, yeah. Ethan was found by a police officer peeing in the parking lot of a Dollar General. Ethan was driving his mom's F-150. The officer spotted a naked 14-year-old girl, a can of Miller Lite, and a 1.75 liter bottle of Grey Goose inside the truck. Excuse me? Mm-hmm. Excusez-moi? The officer asked the intoxicated 15-year-old what he was doing. What's it look like I'm doing? Ethan snapped. Like, cocky little bastard. What's it look like I'm doing? Tanya was called to the scene. (laughs) The officer's microphone captured the conversation between the mother and son. By the way, I didn't know you snuck out, Tanya says. What do you mean I snuck out? Ethan replies. I told you I was. Well, you're not going to tell your dad that after you go out drinking and doing this, she says. So basically she cut him off because he's like, I told you, you know, what I was doing. And Mm -hmm. she didn't want the officer to hear that. And he says, I drink one beer. It doesn't matter, she says. So she was trying to act like mom of the year over here. Right. And really, he's like, hey, mom, I'm going to go drink and get this girl naked and drive around in your F-150. And she's like, cool. Yeah. 
That's totally <clears throat> fine, son. That's absolutely completely fine. Mm-hmm. Ethan had broken at least six laws that night, but was only issued tickets for a minor in consumption and a minor in possession. Tanya drove Ethan home and left the truck at the Dollar General. In her deposition, Tanya was asked what happened to the girl. Tanya responded, her mom picked her up, I assume. I guess. I don't know. Huh? Yeah. You don't want to make sure? fucks given. None. That's crazy to me. Totally crazy. I would have taken her home. Yeah. Sweetheart, are you okay? Like, you know. First of all. You're naked. This consensual? I mean, 14-year-old naked girl. Yeah. At a Dollar General, too? That's so weird. He's peeing in the parking lot. Gross. (laughs) Tanya covered for Ethan and lied to Fred. She paid Ethan's fines and court fees, and when he didn't complete the required alcohol awareness class and community service hours, she told the courts that it was her fault and that she'd misread the online thing. Um, okay, that's not how you be a good mom. No, it's complete shit motherism. You don't motherism? <laughs> motherism. It's <laughs> a new one. Ethan's drinking only increased and he started using cocaine. Wow. Okay. Why would you not? You know what I mean? You I got mean, parents this like point, this. It's like. You're, you, you've been driving since you're 14. You've been drinking I since mean, you're four, or 13, 13, right? 13. You've been driving since you're 13, drinking since you're 14, peeing in Dollar Generals. I Having mean, sex. Just, I mean, doing right. whatever the hell you want. Living by yourself. You might as well just do some cocaine. I mean, your parents are going to, you know, buy your way out of everything, They're, right? They'll probably buy you the cocaine. Yeah, I mean. I'm sure. So he started having house parties continuously, most of which his mother was aware of. Of course. Sometimes the parties would be at the older house he was staying at. Other times it would be at the new guest house and in the new home. So we're going to fast forward a bit to July 15th of 2013. Okay. 16-year-old Ethan wants to have a party. One of his friends was going away to the army, and it was another's birthday. Ethan's friend Star recalls a lot of that evening. She said she'd had so much to drink the weekend before at Ethan's house that she didn't feel like drinking that day, so she stayed sober. Ethan and the birthday boy Garrett both worked at Fred's company that day. They left late in the afternoon, and they picked up Star on the way back to the house. Ethan was driving Fred's supersize F-350 because his own Harley-Davidson package F-150 was in the shop being worked on. (laughs) Just spoiled rotten. I just don't know any of this rich talk. (laughs) Rotten, rotten, rotten. When they got to the house, Ethan and Garrett took showers and posted invites um, to the party on social media. Their friend Avery, who was the one that was about to join the army, was the first to show up. The kids did shots. After dinner, there were more shots, and the four of them piled into the truck to pick up some of Garrett's friends in a nearby city, most of whom Ethan and Star had never met. When they passed a freshly mowed soccer field, Ethan whipped it in and did donuts. He is just above the law in any way, shape, or form. It's just too much. It's just so much chaos. It's like a movie. Yeah. It's like, is this fucking real life? It's kind of just like slow down and just chill, like neutralize some stuff. Yeah. 
On the way back, they made a plan to steal beer from Walmart. Okay. Star and two others stayed in the truck. Surveillance footage from that night shows Ethan and four other boys picking up three cases of Miller Lite and walking out without paying. Now the real party begins. Rap was blaring and the teens were playing beer pong. They did more shots and lit fireworks in the backyard. They all planned to spend the night there. Star says Ethan was texting texting his mother throughout the night. She's well aware. Right. Star says she was getting tired of watching the drunks and she realized that her period had started. Not having any feminine products at the home, Ethan took a shot of Everclear and volunteered to take her to a gas station about a mile down the road. Hmm. Now, feeling uncomfortable leaving the kids he hardly knew, hardly knew at the home alone, he told everyone to get in the truck. Eight people total were in the truck, some riding in the truck bed. She told Ethan that he probably shouldn't be driving, but Garrett reassured Star that he'd seen Ethan drive like this plenty of times before. And he sat in the back with the door open, inviting her in. So she was just like, all right, fine. Like, I need tampons. That's fine. Don't ever do that, guys. Mm -hmm. Don't get into a car with a drunk driver. Mm -hmm. Especially when your gut's telling you, like, "Mm, please, yeah, don't do it. Probably shouldn't do this. Yeah. So it's nearly 11 p.m. And on the way out of the house, Ethan had grabbed up a box fan and smashed it on the ground. Okay. Star says he was showing off to people he didn't know, like, I can break stuff. It's mine. Cool. Very cool. So lame. (laughs) I can break stuff. (laughs) It's mine. I can break anything I want because my parents will buy me a new one. Hilarious. I'm going to smash this Xbox, too. Mommy will have me a new one in the morning. I mean, doing... Breaking like an Xbox or something like that makes more sense than a box fan. Like, like, oh, look at this. <laughs> cool. You can just go replace your $25 box fan. Right. Now, Star carries tremendous guilt about what happened that night to this day. They were only out to get her some tampons. As soon as he got out of the driveway, Ethan gunned the engine. Oh, God. Some of the killed kids yelled at him. Ethan laughed and started driving on the wrong side of the road. Star screamed at him to cut the bullshit. Going 70 plus miles per hour, Ethan got back into the right lane, but he overcorrected and drove into the grass. He was less than a quarter of a mile from his house on two-lane burleson Retta Road. Sadly, 24-year-old Brianna Mitchell's SUV had stalled on the side of the road. Holly, who was 52, and Eric Boyles and their 21-year-old daughter, Shelby, came out of their nearby home to help. Within minutes, Brian Jennings, a 43-year-old youth minister returning from his son's graduation party, stopped his truck on the side of the road to help the crew. He told the two young boys in his truck to keep their seatbelts on and stepped out. Ethan Couch swerved off the road and into the grass where Brianna Mitchell's SUV was stopped, then crashed into Brian Jennings' parked car, which in turn hit an oncoming Volkswagen Beetle. Ethan's truck then flipped over and struck a tree. Brianna Mitchell, Brian Jennings, and Holly Ann Shelby Boyles were killed by Ethan's barreling truck, while Ethan and his seven passengers, none of whom whom were wearing seatbelts, survived although one was paralyzed as did the other two or the two children in 
Jennings car and the two people in the Volkswagen. They became paralyzed? No, they survived. They survived. I was mm-hmm. like, wow. They survived. Brianna was on the phone with her mom explaining what had happened. Ethan never touched the brakes. So wow. he just barreled through these people and these cars. God. And then flipped the truck. Eric Boyles had walked to his mailbox to move his upturned mailbox. <clears throat> I'm sorry, to, had walked to his garage to move his upturned mailbox out of the way. So he was in his garage. And this is where he heard the horrifying sounds of the crash. <clears throat> a neighbor who was watching a movie with headphones on heard it too and came out into the street to investigate. Dang. Another neighbor nearly half a mile away thought he'd heard an, an explosion. Wow. Recordings of seven 911 calls placed within four minutes of each other capture the horrific scene. A woman tells the 911 dispatcher that she has just driven up to the scene of an accident and then interrupts herself. Oh, there's another child in the ditch. The operator tells her to stop screaming and asks how many cars are involved. Ma'am, I can't tell, the woman says. It's dark. There's kids lying in ditches. There's kids lying in the street. In the background, moaning can be heard. On another recording, a man is overheard telling his son to sit down and pray and not to look at the mess. Who is that? The boy asks. And then you hear, oh my God. The operator asks the father how many people are injured and the father starts to count. One, two, three, multiple. I don't even know how many. Another call comes in from a drunken teenage boy. We need some ambulances, he says, slurring. It's bad. We flipped and he pauses and he sees body parts in the street. Oh, my God. Oh, God. The operator asks how many people need help. Dude, I have no idea. Pieces of destroyed metal and human remains were scattered over nearly 300 feet of road. A Tarrant County Sheriff's deputy said the scene looked more like a plane crash than a car wreck. Wow. Ethan was seen walking away from the accident. Huh? Mm-hmm. So he survived. He survived. He should have been the first one dead. Yeah. Little shithead survived. Three hours after the accident, Ethan, who was only 16, had a blood alcohol content of 0.24, three times the legal limit for adult drivers in Texas. Wow. And he also tested positive for marijuana and Valium. Three hours after the accident, three times the legal limit. That's insane. Yeah. Insane. Two weeks after the crash, Ethan was shipped off to a ritzy rehab facility in Newport, California. He had a broken neck, a broken rib, and a broken arm. Every week, Fred and Tanya flew out, always first class, to see their son and to participate in group therapy. They didn't miss a single weekend. But after 62 days, against the advice of Dr. Miller and the people treating Ethan, Fred pulled his son out and brought him home. The rehab bill was up to $90,000. Quite frankly, Fred testified, I was running out of money. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Ethan eventually pleaded guilty to four counts of intoxication manslaughter for killing Brianna, Holly, Shelby, and Brian, and two counts of intoxication assault for the two teenagers who were injured when they were thrown from the bed of the truck as it flipped. Prosecutors were seeking a maximum sentence of 20 years imprisonment for Ethan. 
But his defense lawyers presented a surprising argument during his sentence hearing. They described how the young boy had been a victim of his own family's wealth. Puke. Okay. And how he had grown up without repercussion, re, repercussions for bad behavior. G. Dick Miller, a psychologist hired by the defense, testified in court that the teen was a product of affluenza and was unable to link his actions and consequence with consequences because of his parents teaching him that riches buy privilege. I mean, I'm sure there's some truth to that, but also I just feel like you just kind of know what's right and what's wrong. I kind of just feel like you're a shitbag. You kind of just know. Yeah. After three days of testimony, Judge Jean Board, Board, I cannot speak, Judge Jean Boyd sentenced Ethan to time in a California rehab and 10 years of probation. That's all. That's all. That's literally it. That's literally it. For killing how many people? For killing four people and paralyzing another. Wow. Disgusting. Vomit. The case and the disgusting term affluenza caused national outrage it's disgusting drew uh, dr drew Pensky told cnn's anderson cooper it's a cute clever twist of a phrase that the psychologist should be ashamed of himself for having brought into the courtroom and even more shameful is the judge for having fallen for that nonsense this was the son of a well-off family escaping consequences by saying that he'd always avoided consequences it was proof of separate justice systems in this country one for the rich and another for the poor oh for sure and ethan became the face of wealth and privilege people complained that judge gene boyd had given a much harsher sentence to another 16 year old intoxicated driver 10 years earlier who'd killed just one person In February 2004, Boyd sentenced Eric Bradley Miller, who stole a truck and killed a 19-year-old father, to 20 years. Wow. Telling him, the court is aware you had a sad childhood. I hope you will take advantage of the services offered by the Texas Youth Commission and turn your life around. Eric Bradley Miller had killed one person, not four, and had a much lower blood alcohol level, point eleven compared to couches point twenty four, but had come from a poor family. That's how it always goes. How shameful. It really is very five civil lawsuits were filed by families of the four victims and of the two passengers between September uh, the the uh, two of the passengers between September and November two thousand thirteen against Ethan Couch, his family and the Claiborne Metalworks. An additional lawsuit was filed in December 2013 by the family of Isaiah McLaughlin, a passenger in Jennings' vehicle. The lawsuits were filed by Eric Boyles, husband and, husband and daughter of victim Holly Boyles. I'm sorry, husband and father. Okay. Eric was the husband of Holly Boyles and the father to Shelby Boyles. I wrote that completely wrong, so forgive me. Marla Mitchell, the mother of victim Brianna Mitchell. Shauna Jennings, wife of Brian Jennings. Maria Lemus and Sergio Molina, parents of passengers Sergio E. Molina. 
Kevin and Alicia McConnell, parents of Lucas McConnell, who was a passenger in Jennings' vehicle. Timothy and Pris, uh, Priscilla McLaughlin, parents of Isaiah McLaughlin, who was another passenger in Jennings' vehicle. The first lawsuit was filed by Maria Lemus and Sergio Molina on behalf of their son, Sergio E. Molina, who was riding in the bed of uh, Ethan Couch's truck and suffered a traumatic brain injury. According to the suit petition, Molina's medical expenses exceeded an estimated $600,000 at the time and could top $10 million if he needed round-the-clock care. Wow. So he was the one that was paralyzed. That's crazy. Five of the six suits, all except for the McLaughlin suit, were consolidated in January 2014 to save court costs. The McLaughlin and Mitchell suits were settled out of court by March 2014, and Sergio Molina's family reached an out-of-court settlement by May 2014. By November 2014, all of the suits had been settled with the exception of the suit by McConnell, who had requested a jury trial. The McConnell suit was settled October 2015. In late 2014, as part of that remaining civil case, both Tanya and Fred were required to sit for lengthy depositions. So was Dr. Dick Miller, the psychologist who treated Ethan and his parents after the crash and infamously used the term affluenza in court. He testified that after spending more than 50 hours with the couches, he thought the family was profoundly dysfunctional, and he said that it was clear that Fred and Tanya gave Ethan incredible freedoms with no regard for the law and that his abuse of alcohol and drugs had escalated for years. Clearly. Miller testified that instead of the golden rule, Ethan was taught, we have gold, we make the rules. He said he thought Ethan probably had an anxiety disorder he inherited from Fred. Fred is either an asshole, aggressive, loud, pushy, or he's frightened, he said. And he made it clear that both both parents were complicit in enabling the boy. He said dad was addicted to mother and mother is addicted to the kid. Lavonna and Lavonda, Lavonna and (laughs) Lavonna. Anderson, that's a mouthful, was Ethan's private school co-founder. <clears throat> she said Tanya's biggest problem was that she, quote, loved the boy so much that she couldn't say no to him. Of Fred, she says he needed counseling, but he probably would have thought he was smarter than the counselor anyway. Likewise, both parents said they missed, in the words of Tanya, big red flags. The mother said that she'd left the disciplining up to the father. Sometimes Fred would take away something of Ethan's as punishment, a video game, for instance, or later a truck. But when that happened, Tanya would often give it back or Ethan would play off of each, play off of each other, play them off of each other. Most of the time, though, Ethan felt no consequences for his behavior. He took care of all the tasks and all the chores that I expected him to, Fred said. I didn't count on the fact that my kid was still a kid. Tanya said, I thought he was more grown up than he was. I felt like he was responsible, but he, I didn't see that he was just a little boy too. On December 2nd, 2015, a user on Twitter posted a video along with a caption stating that Ethan Couch was in violation of his probation. 
The video showed several young people playing beer pong at a party, one who appeared to be Ethan. Consequences for drinking while on probation could have included resentencing, which meant a maximum of 10 years imprisonment. A warrant was issued for Couch on December 11, 2005, after his probation officer was unable to reach him. On December 18, 2015, Ethan and his mother, Tanya, were reported as missing. What? Yeah. Just wait. You think shit's crazy? Wait till you hear this. Oh, God almighty. The fugitive hunt for Couch became a federal matter in December 2015 with the U.S. Marshal Service, FBI, and other agencies joining the hunt for the suspect who was believed to have fled the country. A $5,000 reward for information leading to the whereabouts or arrest of Ethan Couch was offered. Turns out, Ethan and his mother were discovered and arrested in Puerto Vallarta, Mexico, on December 28, 2015. Tanya had withdrawn 30 k from the bank and fled with her fugitive son. Okay. Talk about an enabling dumbass bitch. Seriously. You, you still hadn't learned your lesson? No. That, no. That's not Anything how you... Anything for my baby. It's not how you love your child. That's so disgusting. Being a good parent comes with the responsibility of having to make tough choices absolutely show him some tough love for once yeah no you run off with him to another country no to hide him no you're way. a fucking nut yeah mexican authorities transported the pair to an immigration office for them to be deported back to the united states ethan couch was granted a delay in his deportation 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 however you say it deportation based on a constitutional appear in Me appeal in mexico and was instead taken to a jail in mexico city tanya was deported on december 30th aboard a commercial flight to los angeles international airport and she was arrested upon arrival um she was arrested on a felony charge of hindering apprehension of a felon good she was initially being held on one million dollar bail but after her transfer back to tarrant county a judge dropped her bail to seventy five thousand dollars that's a big drop why do these people just constantly get out of everything like because it's so disturbing so what what is he gonna buy the court to <laughs> dear god i mean i'm just thinking maybe like bribing i guess Tanya was released from, released from jail on January 12th, having posted bond. Ethan was flown back to the United States on January 28th, 2016, and was held in custody before appearing at a hearing on February 19th regarding his original juvenile probation case being transferred to the adult court system. The case was transferred to the adult court system on February 19, 2016, and the court stated that Ethan will remain on probation until 2024. On April 13, 2016, State District Judge Wayne Salvent sentenced Couch to four consecu consecutive terms of 180 days in jail, which equaled 720 days total one for each of the 2013 car crash victims in light of him fleeing to mexico so he finally got sentenced to some jail time but it took all enough, of that though. to happen no it's not enough ethan was released from jail on april 2nd 2018 
He was required to wear an ankle monitor and an alcohol detection patch and to submit to drug testing and conform to a 9 p.m. curfew. He is permitted to drive and has a video-equipped interlock ignition device installed in his vehicle, which stops him from starting his car without passing a breathalyzer test. Dang. On March 18, 2019, a Tarrant County judge allowed Ethan Couch to remove the GPS ankle monitor, but the other conditions of his probation remain the same. Why? Because he's rich. It's so sickening. It's so gross. Ethan Couch was rearrested, go figure, right. on January 2, 2020 for violating his probation due to testing positive for THC. Okay. Couch was released from jail one day later because police could not determine if the positive test for THC came from illegal marijuana or cannabidiol oil. And that's all I've got. What? Obviously, he just grew up and still just did not give a shit. Talk about slap on the wrist after slap on the wrist after slap on the wrist. Like, is he... Clearly, we see this trend of he is going to be nothing but a sack of shit right yeah and we can't just put him in jail like no we just keep just letting him do his thing it's crazy to me because it's like if the judge bought into the affluenza thing Mm -hmm. you would think that the, the the thing that they would do about it is give him you know some repercussions that really fit the bill but no exactly they're just like let's just keep letting him believe what he believes yeah let's just no let's show him that this isn't how life works let's give him a dose of reality no instead we're just going to continue this this trend let's show him that he's right yeah literally i just it blows my freaking mind yeah god i'd never heard that case ever that's crazy glad it was a new one for you Actually, I had heard a long time, I heard it a long time ago, several years ago, but I had forgotten about it. And my mom was actually the one that brought it up again. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's a good one. So it's been on my list for a while. That was, I was not expecting that. I was literally thinking like a, like a typical murder story, but that, you know, it's crazy. It is crazy. Um, And again, you know, like I spoke about earlier, unfortunately, in this in this industry i don't know what you would call it but doing podcasting so often there just is not a lot of information about the victims and i looked so much because i wanted to talk about these people's lives that you know the people's lives that he took i wanted to talk about them but there really was nothing it was more just you know their age their name and maybe where they were from yeah. But I wanted to know, you know, and I, I thought that that should be shared, but there's nothing, you know, you get pages and pages of Ethan Couch, but, you know, the victims just kind of go, you know, under, yeah, just kind of get, I don't know what the words I'm looking for, but, you know, just kind of fade away and nobody remembers the victims. It's all about the. Yeah. It's really sad because. Just like with the Matthew Shepard case, I mean, I had a lot of information because his mom legit wrote a book specifically about him and all the events leading up to the day that he was murdered and then the impact that it had 
on you know them as a family and on the world Mm -hmm. so like that i mean i got lucky with that because there was that book but but you know we both struggle with that you know usually with these stories with just not having the info on the victims that should be out there right but it's because like I feel like when a, a lot of times when, you know, these people die, their families just keep them so close to the chest because, mm-hmm. I mean, that was their child or their mom or their dad or, you know, whatever, and they don't want. Rather than having so much out there and it constantly being thrown in their face, you know. Yeah. Maybe it's easier just to not talk about it. Yeah, you know? exactly. So, yeah. Well, that was a good story. I mean. horrible horrible story but a very interesting one like Mm -hmm. i said i've never heard it and yeah who would have thought affluenza gross a terrible word anyway it's affluenza it sounds like it sounds like some kind of disease yeah (laughs) it is a disease actually i think yeah like i know what you mean though a disease of selfish douchebaggery Well, um, thank you guys for listening. This has been a pretty long episode right now. We're at two hours and 19 minutes. Yeah. So. That was a longin. It was. I a, told you it was going to be a longin. It was, it was definitely a longin. <laughs> but if you guys want to follow us on our socials, you can join our Facebook group at For God's Sake Don't Drink the Jones Juice. And you can follow our TikTok and Instagram at Don't Drink the Jones Juice. You can buy our merch at storefrontier.com slash Don't Drink the Jones Juice. And you can send us your own personal true crime and paranormal stories to our email at Don't Drink the Jones Juice at gmail.com. Yeah, buddy. And I believe that's it. <laughs> yeah. Show is. All right, guys, thanks again for listening, and for God's sake, don't drink the Jones juice.